some people turn out a certain way because of their father, and other people turn out a certain way in spite of their father. And I think in your situation, you've turned out the way you have in spite of your biological father. You are listening to episode two of Complicated Fatherhood, an eight-episode podcast docu-series exploring how my own journey through fatherhood has been affected by the father that I never knew. I'm your host, Brian Ruffner. And if this is your first time listening to this podcast, thank you. But I need you to stop and go back and start with episode one. I don't want you to miss a thing. And at the end of the episode, if you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. These ratings help others find this podcast, which for an independent podcaster like myself actually helps me out quite a bit. But regardless, I'm honored that you stopped by. So thank you. Now let's get into it. One of my favorite organizations is The Dad Gang. Founded by Sean Williams, The Dad Gang's mission statement is, and I quote, Here, we defy stereotypes, shatter myths, and celebrate black fatherhood every day. Here is a place where we encourage, teach, support, and share tips that can help all fathers become better dads. Though marred by a racially driven and media amplified stigma, that has led to the world to perceive black fathers as widely missing in action, inactive, or simply unfit parents, we continue to thrive. This is the driving force behind the dad gang. I mean, every post of theirs motivates me to be a great father. But the truth is, when I talk about overcoming stereotypes, proving that black fathers are not only good, but amazing, I feel self-conscious because my black father was absent. Growing up, I didn't know any black dads. When I'd hear this hurtful stereotype mentioned, I'd shrink. Because while I wanted to shout, that's not true. I was deathly afraid somebody would turn to me and ask, then where's yours? As an adult, I am proud to know some incredible black dads. In general, I'm surrounded by men who take care of their business and love on their children in ways that you wouldn't even see 20 years ago. Fatherhood is changing, and I am deeply grateful that it is, because in my circle, if you're not taking care of your kids, we're not associating with you, period. In an interview regarding changing the narrative around fatherhood, actor and author of From Fatherless to Fatherhood, Omar Epps, said, If we're in the barbershop and we know the homie ain't holding it down, you lame. That's a tag on you until you switch over and handle yours. So what makes a man leave their child? Is it generational? Is it societal? Is it how men are wired? You ask a hundred people, you'll get a hundred responses from systemic to irrational to excuse-based. I didn't know my father. He didn't grow up with his, who really didn't grow up with his. Using me as an example, I can trace 100 years of broken fatherhood in my own family lineage. Not long before that, I mean, we're entering a period where my ancestors were bought, sold, and killed like livestock. So again, what makes a man leave their child? 
while you're not going to hear me make any excuses, when the question is dissected and emotion is removed, the answer is, well, complicated. Now, realistically, emotion can't be removed. So when absent fatherhood affects you, any explanation feels like an excuse. When a father leaves, there's a mother, or a partner, or a guardian who's left to pick up all the pieces. There's a kid who wonders at some level, I mean, did I cause this? Did I make him leave? Young kids, older kids, we all have a way of placing the inequities of our absent father on our own shoulders. Wondering if there was anything we could have done or said that would have made him stay. To me, nothing, and I mean nothing, explains the hurts, the confusion, the anger, and the guilt felt by being abandoned by father better than Will Smith in The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. The 24th episode of season 4, titled Papa's Got a Brand New Excuse, deals with Will's character reuniting with his biological father, Lou, after 14 years. Throughout the episode, you see Lou explaining his absence, only to be forgiven by Will, all the while Uncle Phil, played by the late great James Avery, who's picked up all the pieces left by Lou, is understandably skeptical of Lou's return. Will and Lou created plans to travel the summer together, reconnecting after spending 14 years apart. Though, at the end of the episode, Lou breaks his promise to Will and then ask Uncle Phil to break the news to Will that their summer of reconnecting is not going to happen. Now, like any great show, of course, Will overhears the argument between Uncle Phil and his dad. And he steps in, knowing that Lou again is making excuses. After Lou leaves the house for the final time, Will Smith performs what I've always felt was the greatest monologue in television history. After a back and forth between Will and his Uncle Phil, where Will is trying to act like his dad's exit is not really affecting him, you can sense the tension in the room, in part because you know the studio audience is sensing it too. If you've ever seen the episode, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Looking at his uncle, Will says, now you know what, Uncle Phil? I'm gonna get through college without him. I'm gonna get a great job without him. I'm gonna marry me a beautiful honey and I'm having a whole bunch of kids. I'm gonna be a better father than he ever was. And I sure as hell don't need him for that because there ain't a damn thing he could teach me about how to love my kids. As the tears begin to fill his eyes, feeling the hurt and the anguish that could only be felt by knowing you've been abandoned by your father yet again. Will looks at his uncle and asks one simple question. How come he don't want me, man? Wake George. Wake yeah, George came not- after uh, I just come back I'd come back from Las Vegas. I was um, staying with my brother Garland on Elm Street. We had an apartment on Elm Street. And I was working. 
in Glens Falls? No, in, in Albany. Oh, okay, gotcha. And uh, we were, uh, I was, uh, I hadn't played in a band in a, in a couple of years. Like mm-hmm. while I was out in Las Vegas and while I was in Phoenix, I, I didn't play music at all. And uh, then I auditioned for this band, band called Fantasy. It was run by this, this kid, well, and his mother, um, oh, okay. Billy and um he uh he just had these young cats together and they like wanted to do like a horn band they like did like earthland fire and stuff like that okay and uh phil collins and that kind of music mm-hmm. and i went for an audition and they told me that it was just a temporary thing to uh to just fill in for this guy, Mike, Mike, who I knew from before when I was a kid, I actually lived with him at one point when I was a teenager. Okay. And they said he was just going away temporarily. And when I left, Mike was actually playing in a well-known, good, well-known band. Like when I was 17, 18, mm-hmm. now I was like 23 or 24. Okay. And, um, so I went in, sang with them. They loved me, and we started playing some, like, local gigs that Billy's mother had gotten us, and and uh, then we started working with this agent. Mm-hmm. And this, this uh, for some reason, the band split into two different bands, and I had uh, some of the guys, and Billy had other guys. Okay. Well, this no, is all we had This is all in Albany, right? Right. Okay. Okay. And um, then we got an opportunity to play with Luther Guitar Junior Johnson, or no, 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 Guitar Matt Murphy from <laughs> Saturday Night from uh, from uh, the Blues Brothers, the guitarist in the Blues Brothers. Oh, okay. Had the choice of playing with him or playing for a weekend in Lake George. Mm. And we went with the weekend in Lake George. Okay. Which turned into like the next three years. It's, uh, we played and the guy who was renting the place from the owners, um, just wanted us to stay for the summer. Okay. So we played for the summer, like six nights a week at the Jolly Roger, which is right, which was right next to, I think the place is called Wade's. Is there a place called Wade's in Lake George? Uh, sounds familiar, but I, 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 I can't. Across the, street from, across the street from Fort William Henry. Oh, okay. I definitely know Fort William Henry. Yeah, that's we were playing at the Jolly Roger. I don't know what it's called now, but it has like a big deck now. It was like this little kind of podunk kind of place. Okay. And then we went in there, this big horn band. We had like a three and four piece horn section, and we just blew them away. They just loved us for the summer. We just we lived in a house behind the club, and that's what we did. We uh, 
we partied, you know, we did a lot of drugs, we did a lot of drinking, drinking tequila, and uh, and just hanging out, being kind of dogs. Okay. And um, then so that summer ended, I went back to Elm Street in Albany, mm-hmm. and uh, we uh, we played a couple times throughout the season, then... I got a call next summer from the owner of the property mm-hmm. and uh, he wanted us back. And uh, so we went back to the Jolly Roger, which was now being run by the owner. And uh, we played there for another summer. Okay. And uh, in, in between, you know, like uh, all those summers, you know, what, what were you doing, you know, in, in like the fall and winter? Because I know Lake George is, you know, not necessarily um, the most happening town. <laughs> in, right, in right. What were you doing for, for work in between? Uh, I was, I guess the band was playing. I, I can't really remember what I was doing. Uh, I might have been working in a hospital. Oh, oh, I, I think, I think I drove cab in Albany. I think I drove cab during the, during the fall. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I drove cab because my brother Garland was a cab driver. He said, you should just drive cab. So that's what I did. I drove, a, I drove a cab, lived on Elm street, uh, put together a new band, uh, with guys that were older. So when I came back to Lake George the second year, it wasn't me and a bunch of young kids. It was me and a bunch of guys who were like older, like Heimer. Heimer was a keyboard player and Roger Johnson was a guitar player and Raul Bowman was the bass player. And, oh, I had been in Plattsburgh um, when I was, before I went to Arizona. Mm-hmm. And I played with this drummer, Ray Ruffin. So I had Ray Ray join the band. He came down, and he he played with us for for the second two years. Okay. For their first year at the Jolly Roger and the second year at the Sky Harbor, and then the third summer we were playing at the Sky Harbor. Okay. And uh, that's when I met, I met your mother on my third summer at Lake George. Gotcha. And we, uh, she came in with a bunch of her friends. I remember it was a Wednesday night. Mm-hmm. And we went back to your grandparents' bar and partied and hung out. And next thing you know, I was with your mother. Okay. And we were like, you know, I went home and we hung out. And then I went back to Albany, was on Elm Street again, and I got a call from your mother. And she told me she was pregnant. And you were born, and we lived on that uh, that house on Glen, Glen Road. Is that it? Glen Lake yeah. Road? Uh-huh. Yeah, Glen Lake. And even... 
even before that, you know, what, when you found out that, um, that I, I guess I was on the way, you know, what was your initial reaction? Oh, I was, I was excited. I just, I thought it was the coolest thing. Like I already had like two kids and I said, well, maybe I can make this one work. And, uh, Jean, I always thought Jean would be a good mother. And, um, I just, I just thought it was the coolest thing. I told you, I remember one time sitting with Jean in the living room and, uh, she was crying. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what are you crying about? She says, I I just hope this baby isn't an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember thinking that was the oddest thing to be thinking. Uh-huh. It's like, but sometimes you have good parents with bad kids. So I ultimately felt that she was like onto something. Like, but I knew that she would be a good mother. And I thought that I would be a good father. Um, okay. But it didn't work out that way. Well, so. in, in terms of, you know, afterwards, obviously you said you're excited, which is, which is great. You know, what changed for you? Like, did you like try to get more of like a, a stable job? Did you try to get additional gigs? Like, you know, what was that next step for you? Yeah, by the time you were coming along, Gene had convinced me that playing in a band wasn't the right thing for me. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I ended up getting a job at JCPenney at the mall there, uh, Queensbury Mall, or oh, whatever aviation. the name of the mall was. Yeah. Uh-huh. Aviation Mall? Yeah, yeah, Aviation Mall. So I got a job as uh, as a... Uh, salesperson at um jc penny and um that was it was actually kind of cool i was i was i was good at it and uh i was good at getting people to sign up for credit cards and i was always winning extra bonus stuff and um i uh i'm trying to think yeah yeah i worked i worked at the mall and then issues with your with Gene's family just kept coming up, mm-hmm. and I just I just became frustrated. And um, you know we had a fight, and I moved out, and I went and stayed with my friend Andy, who lived a few blocks from us, and I started working for West Mountains. Oh, I I ended up leaving. J.C. Penny and going to work for a place called Sounds Great, okay. a stereo stereo equipment store, and I did that for about a year. Then I met a guy who was basically kind of a scam artist, but I didn't realize it at the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, he uh, got me a job working with him at West Mountain Sales, okay, selling selling um, LMC machines and and tractors and stuff like that. And I did that for a while. That was all I, this before I was born or was this after I was born? This was, this was after you were born. Okay. Yeah, I was working at JCPenney when you were born. Gotcha. I remember, the, I remember we'd 
bought a CD player and it was like, you know, like three or four, five hundred dollars or something like that. I remember like the VCR costs like seven hundred dollars. Yeah. The videotape <laughs> machine. Yeah. They were they just come out. And uh the very first C D I bought was um Bad by Michael Jackson. So that was probably the first music you ever heard. Uh, still and, an album and, uh, I listen to this day. Huh? I said it's still a still an album I listen to to this day. Probably Bad and Dangerous are probably my favorite Michael Jackson albums. Really? really? Oh yeah, yeah. Dirty I Diana. Guess, my, my my favorite is Off the Wall. I just okay. I thought that that was just such a groundbreaking, smartly done album. Mm -hmm. If you listen to Thriller, Thriller is almost a carbon copy of of off the wall in terms mm -hmm. of the, the type of songs and the song placements it's almost like a, a newer version of off the wall yeah yeah so, makes sense it's got quincy jones's uh fingerprints all over it yeah yeah without a doubt without a yeah. doubt like i think dangerous was the first one that wasn't quincy jones is that correct yeah yeah no quincy jones did off the wall thriller bad and then i think he was it was it rodney jenkins uh or teddy teddy bridge i'm forgetting um dude from black teddy Street. riley yeah teddy riley um yeah yeah no he he was a big part of dangerous but anyway right, right. obviously big big michael fan but um you know and then when you're working at jc and you know, I was on the way. Did did you have any family that was that was helping you out, um, or that you could turn to for advice? Not real. I mean, I didn't feel that I did. I was like, uh, when I went to to Glens Falls uh, or Lake George, I didn't really, you know. I didn't really spend a whole lot of time with my family or talk to my family. I basically, my life was JCPenney, you, and Gene. Mm -hmm. That was it. I, I didn't really, like the friends that I I knew were like friends from playing in bars and being around Lake George and I didn't, I didn't, during that period, I didn't really have, I mean, I went through a lot of periods of my life where I considered I only had like one friend and okay. it's sort of like, I mean, I always, I always looked at a friend as somebody who you could knock on their door any time of day and say, I need a place to stay tonight. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I never felt that those people were in my life. I just, I kind of felt like I was, I kind of felt like I was even, I was by myself, even though I had this huge family in Albany. But I went a lot of my life, you know, I mean, I, like years where I would not talk to someone in my family. Really? At one point, I talked to my brother Garland later, he said, at one point, we thought you might be dead oh, because wow. we just ne we just never heard from you ever again. And I I really don't understand what that was about, especially being back here now, because I think 
like my family at this point is almost like an integral part of my my life you know like Mm -hmm. i talk to somebody in my family every day and you know my brother darwin comes over and he visits and we hang out and we drink and watch tv and tell bad jokes to one another and we get goofy with one another and uh i remember one time long time ago when we lived on elm street Garland and I were, were sitting on the couch and like we were eating ice cream. It's like we're adults; we can do whatever we want to. We mm-hmm. can rub this ice cream on our face, and that's what we did. We like sat there like like dipping ice cream and putting it on our face because we were adults and we could do whatever the hell we wanted to. So that's sort of like where I have like I have a my my tightest relationship. All my family is with my brother Garland. Okay. Although a couple of years ago we got in a fight and we didn't talk for a year. We got in a fight on Christmas night and uh, he was saying some things that really kind of pissed me off. Mm-hmm. And we were in my apartment. So, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> yeah. Now, what do you think it is like in your 20s, like in that period when you were in Lake George that you went so long without talking to members of your family? Oh, that, I mean, that even went on when I, when I moved to Boston. Mm-hmm. Like there, there was like a couple of years that I didn't talk to anybody in my family. I, you know what? I, it's, you know, a, a couple reasons. I, I mean, I, I always felt that I was the odd man out in my family. Even like when I, you know, when I was in junior high, I started going to like different towns and skipping school, and I'd ha- hang out in Melrose, a town near here. Mm-hmm. And I met people there, and I played basketball with them, and, and stayed at their houses. Then I got introduced to Waterford, and I start, you know, because there were some people from Melrose who were in the group up with people, up, up with people. You meet them wherever you go. You know that that group. Do you remember uh, up with people? It doesn't sound familiar. Yeah, Up With People was like like a singing group, a nationalized singing group with different chapters. Okay. So I got involved with them, and they rehearsed in Waterford. And so I went to Waterford, and I met some people there, and I met this kid. I was hanging out in Waterford for a while. Then I met this kid, Maurice Pixley, who introduced me to some people in Water Cahoes. And I start hanging out in Cahos. Mm-hmm. And I met Mike Volini, this bass player, and he had a band. And I got, it was like the first real band that I was in, Glass Harbor, a band that we, you know, we played, you know, probably two, three times a month. We played, mm-hmm. which was quite a bit for like a high school band. And uh, it was run by this guitarist named Bob Cook. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was he was sort of a square, and uh, I, I mean that was my first band, okay. first real band, Glass Harbor. Oh, right on. So I forgot what you asked me. <laughs> no worries. Um, um, how come I how come I didn't really get in touch with my family much? Yeah, I don't. 
you know what? I don't, I don't know if it was a black thing that like I hung out with a lot of white kids and I guess maybe I felt my family was too black for my, for, for my taste. I guess like I grew up listening to like soul music and when I was in junior high after the Jackson five hit, I started hanging out with white kids who had musical instruments and PA systems and drums and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, these are the guys that I want to hang out with. Then I got introduced to bands like Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin, and I got really into that whole sort of like white rock culture. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, I used to read all of the magazines and I, you know, I'd be a kid reading, you know, Billboard and, and Teen Beat and all of that stuff and Cream and all of these different magazines that were out at the time. Because a lot of those magazines, like Cream, also had the lyrics of top bands of that day. Okay. Whatever the hits were, they had the lyrics. And that's kind of how I learned songs. I was thinking the other day, how did we learn songs before the internet? Mm -hmm. And it was, you, you, you listen to like piece of it, write it down, listen to another piece of it, and write it down, or look through Cream Magazine and see if the lyrics were in there. Mm -hmm. And that's where I found a lot of the lyrics that I did. But, um, but yeah, I kind I think, I, I mean, in hindsight, I just felt that I wasn't black enough oh, okay. to spend time with my family. I just, I, you know, like I was engulfed in a white culture and, you know, this big six foot four, because I've been six foot four since I was 16. Okay. So. Now in that but, time uh, period. You know, you had mentioned that obviously, well, obviously I know I was not your first child. I was, I was your third. So right. time period when I was about to be born and shortly after, you know, how did you communicate um, to, you know, your other two kids that I was on the way or did you communicate to them? I, I did not. I did not. I, I don't even, they, I don't think they knew until they were like, maybe 15 or 16 years old. Really? Yeah, yeah, they didn't know growing up that they had a, a younger brother. Because wow. um, I, had, I had no real contact with them until okay. Adrian, Adrian was 16. And I got a call from Rochelle saying, Adrian is going to get killed by the girls in her school because they all hate her. And, I need to get her out of here. So I was I was in Boston by that time, mm -hmm. and um, so she came, stayed a couple nights with me, and then I moved around with my sister Tony, and that was kind of a tragic situation because my nieces were like, you know, Dad, the girls at school want to kill her, They're, you know. So I moved around with my brother Bill who's like was at this point had just started his religious career and was 
sort of like a strict, you know, parental Because Adrian couldn't live with me because I was running a house with three teenage boys. Okay. So that's what I was, that's what I was, that's why she couldn't stay in Boston with me. Okay. But um, I would, I would, every, every Saturday night, I'd catch the uh, bus down to Albany and we'd go to church on Sunday and, you know, mm-hmm. but that got kind of old for her and Bill was saying she was sneaking out and just doing like terrible things. So I shipped her back, sort of like my father shipped me back from mm-hmm. Arizona when I went there in junior high. I shipped her back to Las Vegas. And that was that was it. You know, now, I just What about what about Tony? Tony and I just like we, we don't talk like you and I talk. Okay. Like He's like, like I said, I, if I call, he doesn't hang up or anything like that, mm-hmm. but he, like, he never calls me. And I've called him a couple times. He never calls back. So we, you know, I have a relationship with his, with his daughter, with his wife more so than with him. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And I would I would imagine that you, you guys probably didn't chat a lot when either of them were growing up because you had said that you and Adrian didn't have anything until she was yeah. 16. I, I'd imagine the same thing with, with Tony. Is that correct? Yeah, 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 without a doubt. They were like, like they were a team. They were a squad. I, you know, like I went out there one year for Christmas when they lived in Reno mm-hmm. and we hung out. And that seemed cool. But, um, but no, we, we just never, and when I talk to Rochelle, she says, Tony is a lot like you. Mm-hmm. She says it's, it's weird how like things just, they seem to be like genetic. Like, you know, he, he loves to cook and I love to cook. Mm-hmm. He does, he, she said, I could go like two months without hearing from Tony. And we live in the same town. They both mm-hmm. live in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. So Tony picked up some of my traits sort of in the way that I feel I've picked up some of my father's traits. And, but he's, he's, he, you know, he's turned out to be, you know, sort of like you, like a good father and a provider. And, you know, he, I guess he works for, a company that does uh, events and stuff like that. And he makes he makes signs. He makes those vinyl signs. That's what it okay. is. Okay. So. Right on. Um, cool. And then, you know, going going back a little bit. You know, around the time that I was born. You know, what do you remember about you know the hospital trip? me being born like what do you remember about that time uh i remember a couple things one i remember that what is it the post star is that the the glens falls (laughs) there's two newspapers what's the bigger one the chronicle yeah i guess it's the chronicle i remember 
that we sent them the information about your birth and they they didn't publish births of unmarried people. And I just remember thinking, that's kind of fucked up. That's like, it's still a baby, you know? Yeah. The baby was born regardless of who the parent, what the parent's situation is. And we sent you the information. Hmm. And I, I remember, I remember like specific things with, with you. Like I said, I remember one time they were having a, a, a kids race, a baby race, mm-hmm. and at, at the mall, and I entered into entered you into it, and the guy it was actually in the uh, was a post star. Yeah, that the paper, think, yeah, the paper. Think, yeah, I think I remember this. And uh, it was in the post star. It's like they interviewed me. They said, so what did you guys do to get ready? I said, oh, well, Ryan, he carbo-loaded this morning, and he's ready to go. It's going to be a – he's going to do really well. Then the race started, and they had like about, I don't know, it seemed like 10 babies. And it was like people all around, and they shot off the gun. And all the babies started running, started crawling. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of like – sat there looking around smiling at people you were sort of like you were doing like this meet and greet it's like hey how you doing and like you like just looking at and you didn't move an inch <laughs> like you just sat there and like giggled and, and laughed and smiled at people people are oh, what a cute baby it's like yeah but i want them to win i want <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, and I and I told you about the Jane Pauley thing, right? Uh, refresh my refresh my memory. All right, I think. Jane, Jane, Jane Pauley. She is she now is on CBS. Okay. She's uh she does the show uh, CBS Sunday Morning, mm-hmm. but she used to be one of the anchors on the Today Show. Mm-hmm. And anytime she would come on the screen, you would say, "Hi, Jane Pauley." It's like for some reason you had this thing with Jane Pauley. You're like, hi, Jane Pauley. And the other thing was there was a, a, a I think I told you a commercial with um, a bunch of kids standing up, and I forgot what the commercial was, but the kids are like standing like they're like school bleachers, and they're all like, you know, probably six or seven years old, and they're each standing up saying, like I remember the one girl said. Hi, my name is Lauren Nabowski. And then this kid would stand up. He would be almost the last kid, I think. And he'd say, my name is Thor. And you would be like, sit down, sit down. <laughs> like you didn't like this Thor for some reason. Oh. You, you know, you just like sit down, sit down. So, I mean, you were like, you were like a, a fun baby. You were a, a, a fun toddler. And, you know, I liked spending time with you. I remember I was feeding you one morning. And uh, I said, Ryan, you want some salad? And, like, you looked and you thought and you said almost like in a French accent, uh, no, no salad, daddy. No salad, daddy. I don't really, I'm like, oh, my God, this kid's turning French right before my eyes. 
and uh, that yeah. So you know, it was like it was kind of a cool period. But like I said, all of that other stuff was going on, and it was just I couldn't deal. I was just you know I was just really kind of immature. That's really all I could say. I was I I didn't reach maturity till I was like fifty. Okay. So. Yeah, because even even as you tell those stories, it's it's so interesting. Obviously, knowing our our background, knowing our story, knowing the fact that you know you weren't around when when I was growing up, like to hear these stories about the salad and Jane Pauley and you know the race that was in the Post Star. It's like like all that sounds awesome. So you know what what happened? You know, like what what <laughs> you you know want to leave? I like I told you I. A couple of things were going on, uh, like three times in a matter of, I don't know, two months, I got stopped by the cops for like random stuff when I was just, because I don't think I was driving at the time, like your mother had a car, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. So I'd be walking home from work or walking down, was it Route 9? Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, I got pulled over by the cops and, you know, I was kind of feeling that, you know, your grandparents bar was a cop bar and they had maybe complained about their daughter being with this black guy. So, you know, every time a cop saw me or a tall black guy, they would stop him and that's kind of, and then there was issues like when we lived over, uh, I can't even remember the name of the street, but uh, your, your your uncle Mike and your grandfather on various occasions showing up at our house in the middle of the night, yelling shit like, "Gene, look what you're doing to your mother! You're killing your mother!" You know, it's like this. You know, this isn't right. You you know, just like yelling stuff and. Uh, hearing just yelling and you know and it's like I wanted I wanted to go out and confront them but I I, I just couldn't and I'm just like Gene's like no just wait here don't don't say anything they'll go away soon and that happened about maybe four times mm-hmm. and then got to be holidays and Gene would like you know, we would have Christmas or Thanksgiving. Then she would go over to your parents' house or to her parents' house with you. And mm-hmm. I was uninvited. It wasn't like I wasn't invited. It was like I was uninvited. And I couldn't, like, I couldn't tell you to this day where your grandparents lived when we lived in Lake George or when we lived in Glens, Glens was it? What's the name of the town with the Avisha Mollers? Queensbury. Oh, Queensbury, yeah. Yeah, we lived in Queensbury. And then so, and then one day, you know, me and your mother got in a fight about something. And I'm just like, I'm out of here. And I moved in with my friend Andy a couple blocks away. And uh, that's, that's that's really why I left. I mean, Gene and I, we, I mean, we had our issues, but 
they weren't like, you know, like I said, I just, I wasn't really strong enough or smart enough or mature enough to deal with that kind of situation. Because like I said, I, I had for most of my life been around white people and dated white women for like, you know, most of my teenage life. And I felt like I had never experienced, you know, I'd had, I had had kids' parents say to them things like, how come all your friends are social cases referring to me? Or why are you just hanging out with him? He's just a novelty to you. You know, and I just, you know, I remember hearing things like that coming back from my friends, like Nick, his, or, or Nick, his, he was hanging out with us in Cahos one day, and he had a, a boom box, and he took it home, and he, when he came back later, he didn't have it with him. He said, my father took it from me and made me wash it off because Maurice was here. Mm-hmm. So I had always dealt with like subtle racism and stuff like that. But I think the last straw for me was being home on a Thanksgiving while my girlfriend and my son were at some place where I wasn't welcome. So. And you know what? And I, in hindsight, I kind of see their point. There was like, here was this guy I just played in a band, and that's all I did. And I was this big black guy in a predominantly white neighborhood. And it wasn't something they were used to or expected their daughter to be involved with. And, uh, you know, I remember Jean told me one time she was out with you, and somebody, came up to her and said something like, is this one of those welfare babies? Like, because you had darker skin than her. And that there's no way that this baby could have been genes. Mm-hmm. So I just, I, I just felt like that the racism was overwhelming. And I, you know, there was, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. I could only foresee it getting worse as time went on. I I didn't have any sense that anything would ever get better than it is right now. Yeah. And if I had stuck around, maybe it would have. Maybe I could have convinced them that I was a different guy, but basically I turned into the guy that they expected me to be. So that's that. Yeah. Wow. And yeah, you know, it's um I, I know the the eighties in upstate New York. I mean, upstate New York still there. There are certainly pockets of places that right. I I wouldn't want to visit. Like I, I remember growing up and going to like the Washington State Fair. And as a kid, like I certainly didn't know much about this, but I specifically remember seeing like Confederate flags <laughs> at like right. the Washington State right. Fair. Even for me, I like right. probably eight nine. You know, I had a basic understanding of Civil War and what the Civil War was fought over. So it always just really confused me why a there were confederate flags around still period and b how we were 
in the North, in the Union, but people in Union states had Confederate flag like symbols. Right. They, <laughs> confusing to me. So I have no doubt that there was, especially in the 80s, I, I'm sure it was yeah. very prevalent because I dealt with it a little bit growing up as well. You know, and you know, you'd hit it head on in terms of saying, you know, that you would kind of turn into um, who you feel like they expected you to turn into. But when you left, you know, did did you feel bad for me? Did you feel bad for my mom? Like, what what were your thoughts? I, you know what? In reality, I felt that if I left, or when I left, that that your grandparents were going to take care of Gene, and that Gene was going to take care of you. And I didn't feel like I was doing anything while I was there that was special other than going to work and coming home and, and you know, just being there. I, I didn't feel like I was contributing anything ultimately. So I just, I just felt that her family would kick in which in reality they did so my phone is down to 11 percent oh okay <laughs> i'm like hearing this beep i'm like what the hell is that oh yeah no worries no worries um and then you know so once you left you know you had mentioned that you moved down the road you know did did you leave and come back periodically or you know was it just clean cut like i'm gone no, I would like I would I would visit and Jean would bring you down when I moved to Saratoga, she would bring me down um to my house, you know, for an hour or two. And that's I mean, that's basically the way it was. It was dribs and drabs. Um what was I gonna say? Oh, so yeah, like I would like come over sometimes and, and hang out and sit there and read my book and and uh you know, play with you, go you know, play in your room and leave it a mess and and I just remember Gene saying, looking at us playing together, sort of like, Yeah, this is the way it should be, but I just, I, I, for some reason, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't go back. I couldn't, like I said, all I could picture was more uh, being alone by myself than Jean is hanging out with her family. So, yeah, that was, that was my big thing. Yeah. Um, and do you remember the last time that, that you had contact with me? Um, it was, I mean, probably when you were, you were maybe three. Okay. Um, and I lived in Saratoga and I just, I just, I remember, I remember last time I saw you. We hugged, and 
and uh, almost for an unnaturally long time, like I held you for a while in my apartment when I lived at the Algonquin. And uh, then Jean came and got you. I think that was the last time I saw you until, you know, I'm trying to think of where I got, I got a picture of you from, I think you were like 10 or 11. And I have no idea where I got that from. But uh, yeah, yeah, our, our interactions like ended when you were about three. You're about Reagan's age, I guess. Interesting. And then, you know, at, at that point, you know, I know you had said when when I was born or about to be born that like you had an opportunity to, you know, I don't know if you, I'm paraphrasing, but, but start over. So then once you did leave and then you had three kids that you didn't have a relationship with, like what, what, what were your thoughts around that? Did you think about that part? I, you know what, to tell you the truth, not a lot. I just... I, I, like I said, I, I lived kind of a selfish life. I I didn't really think too much about the three kids that I had left behind until I got older and was living in Boston and saying, wow, I have three kids that are teenagers. And I should really do something about this. But during during my 30s, I didn't I really didn't spend a whole lot of time, you know, thinking about you guys. I just didn't. It was like I remember sitting with my father one time and he was talking about some woman who wanted to be around all of her kids. He says, and I can't deal with that. And I remember thinking, damn, man, I was one of those kids that you couldn't deal with. And here we are now, I'm 20, whatever. And uh, so, yeah, I didn't really spend a whole lot of time. Like, I know it kind of sounds bad to say, but it's the truth. I didn't, you know, in my 30s, I didn't spend a whole lot of time thinking about the kids that I'd left behind. Mm -hmm. I was just like moving forward and thinking about what, what could I do? in my life to make more money to be, get a better life to have sex with as many girls as possible that's basically how i i spent my 30s next time on complicated fatherhood why boston one of our goals was to get on big stages and i just called her up after I met her. When was it that you told her that you had three other kids? I remember thinking, this kid could be Ryan. I didn't really spend as much time with my mother as I should have. It's still kind of emotional. Complicated Fatherhood was written, recorded, and edited by me, Ryan Rucker. All music was composed and recorded by me as well. Join us for the conversation on Instagram at Complicated Fatherhood. And if you like what you hear, I'd love for you to share this podcast on any of your favorite social media platforms using the hashtag Complicated Fatherhood. We'll see you next time.